Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, timeless wisdom to enrich every day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, August 11. What is the best handshake? You can't say that Swami's not being practical in this. What is the best handshake? Living wisely, living well, timeless wisdom to enrich every day. And on August 11th, he says, what is the best handshake? It's like, why not make everything conscious? So, I'll read it again. What is the best handshake? People sometimes lightly extend two or three fingers as if preferring not to touch you at all. Others offer their hand limply, as if eager to disengage from you as quickly as possible. Others cling to your hand, as if to a lifeline. Still others squeeze your hand forcefully, as if wanting to overpower you. The best handshake is firm, friendly, and tactfully brief. Neither too personal, nor too impersonal, and leaving both persons the integrity of their own space. Well, I mean, by this time you've probably figured out I'm a great fan of Swami Kriyananda, both of his wisdom and of his writing. But he just he just manages to hit it perfectly, leaving both parties the integrity of their own space. So we meet as equals. We meet respectfully. We meet, we meet obviously intending to have at least some kind of interaction or it wouldn't progress to the point of a handshake. But... Neither side is imposing on the other. Neither side is presuming on the other. But at the same time, you're not holding back. You're not sort of standing there waiting for the person to prove themselves. And, you know, I love the extending three fingers as if they hesitate to touch you at all. I was remembering many years ago, friends of ours, they had two, two, two little boys. Let me think they would have been like about six and four. And the, the six-year-old was very high-strung. The four-year-old was very sturdy. They were brothers, full brothers, but they had very different temperaments. The, the, the uh, six-year-old was sort of spindly and always intense, and the four-year-old was robust and sort of, you know, a little Humpty Dumpty shape. And the, the parents left the children uh, to be babysat with me um, so that they could go out and have an evening out because parents of two boys... Uh, two years apart in age. I'm going to tell you a funny story about that very woman. She'd had she had the one son, the first one, and he was she and she got pregnant when he was two, or she got pregnant so that when the the brother would be born, it would be two years apart. So it was very close. She was very very nervous about it because you know boys are a handful, and uh, she her, her husband was very dear and very involved, and she just got she was getting increasingly nervous in the pregnancy. Then she realized that her brother. Her husband, I mean, had a brother who was exactly two years difference in age. And so therefore she called her mother-in-law. And you know, Mom, she said, I'm getting really nervous, you know, having, thinking about having to raise two boys who are just two years, two years apart. But you did it, Mom. I mean, help me. How did you do it? And she said, Honey, it was hell. <laughs> That's not what you want to hear. I'm going to give you one more since I'm just talking about this so silly. 
Another friend of mine, it was again two brothers who were very close in age, he remembers when they were very small, his mother being just flat out on the floor with her eyes closed, while she and her brother, he and his brother, who were small enough to do this, crawled all over her and kept trying to pry her eyes open. (laughs) And she refused. She refused to let them pry her eyes open. So thus is motherhood, which I've never... I've never been pregnant, I've never raised a child, but I have deep respect for it. So now I want to go all the way back to where I was going. So I have these two boys, and they're managing. Parents are lovely, they're doing great with their kids. However, accidentally, they drove off to dinner, and this was before cell phones. They drove off to dinner, and they took the six-year-old's stuffy with them, his favorite stuffy, where he could never go to sleep at night without his stuffy, but I had to put this child to bed, and he did not have his stuffy. So I inquired as to what kind of a stuffy it was, and it turned out that it was a a white stuffy. I'm not quite sure what animal it was, but it was a pure white stuffy. As luck would have it, I had a pure white teddy bear in the house. So I couldn't bring his real stuffy, but I I brought him this one which I thought would be a substitute. So the poor little six-year-old, you know, (laughs) it would be sort of like just suggesting, well, you know, your child isn't here, so I'll give you this child. I mean, that was like about how receptive he was to it. But the poor little boy had been trained to be polite, and he was trying to be polite to me. So I I set the little teddy bear next to him, and he reached out with his little hand like this, and he put two little fingers, like he grabbed about two threads of the white stuffy like this, like this, and then just looked mournfully off to the side like that. I never forgot, and there was just nothing I could do. There was nothing any of us could do until the stuffy came home. You know, he survived. I don't think he was traumatized for life. But I so remember, I mean, the essence of reluctance. Like he just did the absolute minimum he could do and still actually touch the teddy bear. Now, perhaps that's an exaggeration. But sometimes people reach out and you do really feel that if they had a choice, they wouldn't touch you. That's not... That's not a winning strategy. And that's also an individual really needs to ask themselves if they're in the wrong profession or whatever it is that requires them to be in that kind of contact with people. Also, when you put out that kind of energy or put out your hand so limply, handshakes are an exchange of magnetism. And in actual fact, um, in, in the East and in India especially, now everything has become westernized. But the tradition of India was not to shake hands that you would prone up like this. You put your palms together, put your hands near your heart, and just a little bit of a, you know, a turn of the head. You don't, it's not like the Japanese tradition of bowing. And what this means is the divine in me, you know, bows and honors the divine in you, which is a beautiful way to greet. Namaste. That's what that means. And it's, it's more commonly known these days. It's a very appropriate greeting. It's impersonal and personal at the same time. And it avoids physical contact. Because Master said when you shake someone's hand, it creates a horseshoe magnet like this. And, and you exchange magnetism. And whosoever magnetism is stronger will influence the magnetism that's weaker. Because magnetism is just energy being exchanged. And, and so, but the greater the force of energy, it, 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 it overpowers and, and slightly converts, depending on how much more energy is there. So when you put your energy out limply like that, if you do make contact, you don't have any aura around you. You're not projecting anything. You're just, uh, really, you're actually making it worse for yourself. Because if you're not projecting energy, 
then you're in a position where whatever is being projected at you will overcome you. And of course, the very act of a limp handshake or, or a few fingers extended is, is a demonstration of a lack of personal magnetism. And personal magnetism is everything, not just in this incidental relationship, but in our entire life. Personal magnetism, the energy that we generate from within our own spine, from, from within the, the spiritual core of our being, it's the energy that radiates out. And this is entirely an energy universe. This is a scientific fact. It's been a, a, spiritual, um, under, a spiritual understanding for millennia uh, in cultures like India's that understand these things among yogis. It's an energy universe, and now all of science says exactly the same things. They're talking about this extraordinary inner relationship, this entanglement. The word escapes me right at the moment, whatever that word is, this cosmic entanglement where one little cell moving over here touches the whole universe. It's all energy. So the kind of energetic force you're putting out, and therefore the magnetism you're putting out, determines your destiny. So if you're going to be in any kind of relationship with someone, you want to present yourself with positive, dynamic magnetism, or else you just simply become um, the victim, or you, when, not necessarily victim, because not everybody's unkind, but your, your, your fate is dictated by the magnetism around you, and it becomes, you see, a self-perpetuating cycle, because a person who responds like that probably already feels helpless in the face of the waves of life. So the more you affirm that helplessness and do not deliberately counteract it, the more then you will, in fact, be tossed like a leaf on the river of life, rather than having some actual capacity to determine your own destiny. So then Swami talks about the one who just grips your hand so hard and tries to overcome you, you know, someone who's really trying to put out their own willpower in this super hard way, but that's not such a good idea either. And that's where Swami just says, firm, definite, and how did he say it? What was the phrase he used? Tactfully brief, in which both persons just simply acknowledge, here I am, there you are, and the phrase that's often said, nice to meet you. And it just is nice to meet you. I'm actually meeting you. I'm not just sort of standing here and not engaging with you. You know, everything about living wisely, living well, is that we have to enter into the flow of our own lives. And that's sometimes more challenging than people realize. Every single day we have to enter into the, sl- the flow of their own lives. You know, I'm going to mention something which is a bit extreme for this, but it's still interesting. The, a master said something that was very unusual when he commented that, you know, sometimes, like, for example, if there's a plane crash, Um, and everybody on the plane is killed. And you would think, according to the law of karma, that everybody had a destiny to be killed. But there's very interesting stories about things that happen like that. There was a woman who lived at Ananda village, which is the first Ananda community that's many years ago, and her mother was in Chicago. Her mother wanted to come out to visit her. And her mother had a ticket, and she was planning it. The girl just felt it wasn't a good time for her mother to come. So she called him and said, Mom, this just isn't a good time. She said, Honey, I already have a ticket. I know, Mom, but really, turn in your ticket. I Just come, come in two weeks. That will be a much better time for me. So the mother grumbled a little, canceled the ticket, got another one for two weeks. That plane crashed, and everyone was killed. 
There was another story of a, of a plane flying out of Las Vegas, which is, you know, a gambling place. And there was a man who was about to get on the plane. And just as he was about to get on the plane, he felt lucky, is how he put it. He felt lucky. He went back to the casino and he actually had a real string of luck and won a lot of money. And he thought, wow, that was sure a good intuition to follow. Then he found out that the plane that he, was, that he almost got on crashed and everyone was killed. So in both cases, both people had enough karma to be drawn toward it, but not enough karma to actually be drawn into it. Now, Master said, if you have strong karma of your own, even if you're somewhat entangled in the group karma, something will happen to pull you out of it. But if you're not in the habit of generating magnetism for your own life, you can get caught up in a wave. And of course, it had to have been somewhere your karma to die, but it was your karma to die because of the habit of not being magnetic in your own life. Now, maybe that's, I think that's a little heavy to introduce in the last two minutes of, of a brief 15-minute talk, but it's very interesting. And Swami's talking about a handshake. Like, there isn't a time when we shouldn't be practicing standing strong in ourselves, appropriately strong, trying neither to overpower nor to shrink, but just to be myself, firm, welcoming, tactfully brief, respecting his space and my space. And that's who we're supposed to be at all times, and we should practice whenever we can. We should especially practice on easily accessible, low-risk opportunities like this one. What is the best handshake? People sometimes lightly extend two or three fingers as if preferring not to touch you at all. Others offer their hand limply as if eager to disengage from you as quickly as possible. Others cling to your hand as if to a lifeline. Still others squeeze your hand forcefully as if wanting to overpower you. The best handshake is firm, friendly, and tactfully brief, neither too personal nor too impersonal, and leaving both persons the integrity of their own space. God bless you, my friends. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation, or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.